This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Paper Losses by Laurie Moore. They all slept in the same room in separate beds and saw other families squalling and squabbling so that by comparison, theirs, a family about to break apart forever, didn't look so bad. The story was chosen by Gary Steingart, whose fiction, journalism, and essays have been appearing in the magazine since 2003. His latest novel, which was excerpted in The New Yorker, is Super Sad True Love Story. This is Gary Steingart's second appearance on the fiction podcast. Welcome back, Gary. Hey, great to be back. So the first time you were on in 2008, you chose a story by Andrea Lee, and this time it's a story by Laurie Moore. Are you a fan of Laurie's work in general? Oh, yes. I'm a huge fan. Laurie's work was some of the first work I've ever encountered when I uh, got to college and decided to become, you know, a writer. Is that when it happened? That's when it happened. And (laughs) I realized quite quickly that I could never write short stories like that. And I never really wrote a short story. I think I wrote two short stories in my whole life. And I keep a a, a picture of Laurie Moore by my bedside. I work in bed (laughs) to remind me not to write short stories because it's very hard to get them to be this good. Yeah, what was it in her work that really got to you? I think I believe in the dictum that a good short story is really like a novel. It has to contain a whole world, and that requires incredible economy, and I just don't have that kind of economy. But this this story is interesting. I mean, Paper Loss is interesting because it begins with this no-nukes march, and, you know, Chekhov always said that if you have a no-nukes march in the first act, you have to have a thermonuclear war by the third act. But it doesn't. It, that, that, the whole theme kind of fades away a little bit. And that, that really, when I teach in my creative writing program in, at Columbia, that's something I would advise against unless you have this kind of mastery. I, I think you can think of divorce as a kind of thermonuclear war. Well, that, right? That's right. The yeah. fact that it sort of evolves and sh- shape shifts from <laughs> nuclear war into divorce, which are both wonderful <laughs> things. So. so Laurie does something that that is rare in fiction, which is that she is funny, which is rare, but she's also funny while writing about something. She's not funny for funny's sake. Why is that so hard to do? It's very hard to do. I think there's some kind of also mimetic quality. I mean, she doesn't try in this mechanic and overt way to work the humor in. All she does is sort of quietly mimic the way people talk, the the, the offhand sentences that just happen. And, And she obviously does concentrate on people coming together and people coming apart. Divorce and marriage are huge themes. So she just, she knows exactly when to place it. She also knows in a great way to move, and this is very elemental, but it's very hard for a lot of people I know to do, to move between summary and scene, to know when to summarize. Mm-hmm. Because this story really encompasses, it, it, it encompasses a small period, but it also encompasses a huge period. It's really an entire marriage being condensed. And to do that, knowing when to use dialogue and when to use scene is very difficult. So the trick of her writing is all in the timing. Now, you also write funny. Mm-hmm. So I is, try to write funny. Is yeah. that kind of timing something that you stay very aware of when you're working? Well, yes. And the way I do it, which is which is why I love reading other people's works out loud, the way I do it is every scene I write, if it contains any dialogue at all, is immediately read out loud. And then you have this kind of bullshit detector that hopefully catches things that people don't say. I've just wrote a memoir where it's very hard to recreate dialogue completely. So you often have to switch into summary mode. And I sometimes felt a little bit that I was out of my depth. But reading something like this really helps in terms of reminding you how good dialogue works within something that that is aiming for really an encompassing of an entire world. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Okie doke.
And now here's Gary Steingart reading Paper Losses by Laurie Moore. Although Kit and Rafe had met in the peace movement, marching, organizing, making no nuke signs, now they wanted to kill each other. They had become also a little pro-nuke. Married for two decades of precious, precious life, she and Rafe seemed currently to be partners only in anger and dislike. Their old, lusty love mutated to rage. It was both their shame and demise that hate, like love, could not live on air. And so in this, their newly successful project together, they were complicitous and synergistic. They were nurturing, homeopathic, and enabling. They spawned and raised their hate together, cardiovascularly, spiritually, organically. In tandem, as a system, as a dance team of bad feeling, they had shoved their hate center stage and shown a spotlight down for it to seize. Do your stuff, baby. Who is the best? Who's the man? Pro-nuke? You are? Really? Kit was asked by her friends, to whom she continued indiscreetly to complain. Well, no, Kit sighed, but in a way, seems like you need someone to talk to. Which hurt Kit's feelings, since she'd felt that she was talking to them. I'm simply concerned about the kids, she said. Rafe had changed. His smile was just a careless yawn. Or was his smile just stuck carelessly on? Which was the correct lyric? She didn't know. But for sure he had changed. In Beersboro, one put things neutrally like that. Such changes were couched. No one ever said that a man was now completely fucked up. They said, the guy has changed. Rafe had started to make model rockets in the basement. He'd become a little different. He was something of a character. The brazen might suggest he's gotten into some weird shit. The rockets were tall, plastic, penile-shaped things to which Rafe carefully shellacked authenticating military decals. What had happened to the handsome hippie she'd married? He was prickly and remote, empty with fury. A blankness had entered his blue-green eyes. They stayed wide and bright, but non-functional, like dime-store jewelry. She wondered if this was a nervous breakdown, the genuine article. But it persisted for months, and she began to suspect, instead, a brain tumor. Occasionally he catcalled and wolf-whistled across his mute alienation, his pantomime of hate momentarily collapsed. Hey, cutie, he'd called to her from the stairs, after not having looked her in the eye for two months. It was like being snowbound with someone's demented uncle. Should marriage be like that? She wasn't sure. She seldom saw him anymore when he got up in the morning and rushed off to his office. And when he came home from work, he disappeared down the basement stairs. Nightly, in the anxious conjugal dusk that was now their only life together, after the kids had gone to bed, the house would fill up with fumes. When she called down to him about this, he never answered. He seemed to have turned into some sort of space alien. Of course, later she would understand that all this meant that he was involved with another woman. But at the time, protecting her own vanity and sanity, she was working with two hypotheses only, brain tumor or space alien. All husbands are space aliens, her friend Jan said on the phone. God help me, I had no idea. Kit began spreading peanut butter on a pretzel and eating quickly. He's in such disconnect, his judgment is so bad. Not on the planet he lives on. On his planet, he's a veritable Solomon. Bring the stinking baby to me now! Do you think people can be rehabilitated and forgiven? Sure, look at Ollie North. 
he lost that Senate race. He was not sufficiently forgiven. But he got some votes. Yeah, and now what is he doing? Now he's promoting a line of fire-retardant pajamas. It's a life. She paused. Do you fight about it? About what, Kit asked. The rockets back to his homeland? Kit sighed again. Yes, the toxic military crafts business poisoning our living space. Do I fight? I don't fight. I just, well, okay. I ask a few questions from time to time. I ask, what the hell are you doing? I ask, are you trying to asphyxiate your entire family? I ask, did you hear me? Then I ask, did you hear me again? Then I ask, are you deaf? I also ask, what do you think a marriage is? I'm really just curious to know. And also, is this your idea of a well-ventilated place? A simple interview, really. I don't believe in fighting. I believe in giving peace a chance. I also believe in internal bleeding. She paused to shift the phone more comfortably against her face. I'm also interested, Kit said, in those forensically undetectable dissolving plastic bullets. Have you heard of those? No. Well, maybe I'm wrong about those. I'm probably wrong. That's where the mysterious car crash may have to come in. In the chrome of the refrigerator, she caught the reflection of her own face, part brunette Shelley Winters, part potato, the finely etched sharps and accidentals beneath her eyes, a musical interlude amid the bloat. In every movie she had seen with Shelley Winters in it, Shelley Winters was the one who died. Peanut butter was stuck high and dry on Kit's gums. On the counter, a large old watermelon had begun to sag and pull apart in the middle along the curve of seeds like a shark's grin, and she lopped off a wedge, rubbed its cool point around the inside of her mouth. It had been a year since Rafe kissed her. She sort of cared and sort of didn't. A woman had to choose her own particular unhappiness carefully. That was the only happiness in life, choosing the best unhappiness. An unwise move, and good God, you could squander everything. The summons took her by surprise. It came in the mail addressed to her, and there it was, stapled to divorce papers. She'd been properly served. The bitch had been papered. Like a person, a marriage was unrecognizable in death, even when buried in its favorite suit. Atop the papers themselves was a letter from Rafe suggesting their spring wedding anniversary as the final divorce date. Why not complete the symmetry, he wrote, which didn't even sound like him, though his heartless efficiency was suited to this, his new life as a space alien, and generally in keeping with the principles of space alien culture. The papers referred to Kit and Rafe by their legal names, Catherine and Raphael, as if the more formal versions of them were the ones who were divorcing. Their birth certificates were divorcing, and not they themselves. Rafe was still living in the house and had not yet told her that he'd bought a new one. Honey, she said, trembling, Something very interesting came in the mail today. Rage has its medicinal purposes, but she was not wired to sustain it, and when it tumbled away, loneliness engulfed her, grief burning at the center with a cold blue heat. At the funerals of two different elderly people she hardly knew, she wept in the back row of the church like a secret lover of the deceased. She felt woozy and ill, and never wanted to see Rafe, or rather, Raphael, again, but they had promised the kids this Caribbean vacation. It was already booked, so what could they do? This, at last, was what all those high school drama classes had been for, acting. She had once played the queen in A Winter's Tale, and once a changeling child in a play called Love Me Right Now, written by one of the more disturbing English teachers in her high school. In both of these performances, she had learned that time was essentially a comic thing, 
only constraints upon it diverted it to tragedy, or at least to misery. Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde, if only they'd had more time. Marriage stopped being comic when it was suddenly halted, at which point it became divorce, which time never disturbed, and the funniness of which was never-ending. Still, Rafe mustered up thirty seconds of utterance in an effort to persuade her not to join him and the children on this vacation. I don't think you should go, he announced. I'm going, she said. We'll be giving the children false hope. Hope is never false, or it's always false, whatever, it's just hope, she said. Nothing wrong with that. I just don't think you should go. Divorce, she could see, would be like marriage, a power grab. Who would be the dog? and who would be the owner of the dog. At this point, however, she and Rafe had not yet signed the papers, and there was still the matter of her wedding ring, which was studded with little junk emeralds, and which she liked a lot, and hoped she could continue wearing, because it didn't look like a typical wedding ring. He had removed his ring, which did look like a typical wedding ring, a year before, because he said it bothered him. She had thought at the time that he'd meant it was rubbing. She had not been deeply alarmed, he had often shed his clothes spontaneously. When they first met, he'd been something of a nudist. It was good to date a nudist. Things moved right along. But it was not good trying to stay married to one. Soon she would be going on chaste geriatric dates with other people whose clothes would, like hers, remain glued to the body. What if I can't get my ring off, she said to him now on the plane. She had gained a little weight during their twenty years of marriage, but really not all that much. She had been practically a child bride. Send me the Sawyer's bill, he said. Oh, the sparkle in his eye was gone. What is wrong with you, she said. Of course she blamed his parents, who had somehow, long ago, accidentally or on purpose, raised him as a space alien, with space alien values, space alien thoughts, and the hollow, shifty character, concocted guilelessness, and sociopathic secrets of a space alien. What is wrong with you, he snarled. This was his habit, his space alien habit, of merely repeating what she had just said to him. It had to do, no doubt, with his central nervous system, a silicon-chipped information processor incessantly encountering new linguistic combinations, which it then had to absorb and file. Repetition bought time and assisted the storage process. She was less worried about the girls who were just little, than she was about Sam, her sensitive fourth grader, who now sat across the airplane aisle, moodily staring out the window at the clouds. Soon, through the machinations of the state's extremely progressive divorce laws, a boy needs his dad, she would no longer see him every day. He would become a boy who no longer saw his mother every day, and he would scuttle a little and float off and away like paper carried by wind. With time, he would harden. He would eye her over his glasses, in the manner of a mater d' suspecting riffraff. He would see her coming, the way a panicked party guest sees someone without a name tag. But on this, their last trip as an actual family, he did fairly well at not letting on. They all slept in the same room, in separate beds, and saw other families squalling and squabbling, so that by comparison theirs, a family about to break apart forever, didn't look so bad. She was not deceived by the equatorial sea breeze and so did not overbake herself in the colonial sun. With the resort managers, she shared her moral outrage at the armed guards who kept the local boys from sneaking past the fence onto this white, white beach, and she rubbed a kind of resin into her brow to freeze it and downplay the creases to make her appear younger for her departing husband, though he never once glanced at her.
Not that she looked that good. Her suitcase had got lost, and she was forced to wear clothes purchased from the gift shop. The words La Caribe emblazoned across every single thing. On the beach, people read books about Rwandan and Yugoslavian genocide. This was to add seriousness to a trip that lacked it. One was supposed not to notice the dark island boys on the other side of the barbed wire throwing rocks. There were ways of making things vanish temporarily. One could disappear oneself in movement and repetition. Sam liked only the trampoline and nothing else. There were dolphin rides, but he sensed their cruelty. They speak a language, he said. We shouldn't ride them. They look happy, Kit said. Sam studied her with a seriousness from some sweet beyond. They'll look happy so you won't kill them. You think so? If dolphins tasted good, he said, we wouldn't even know about their language. That the intelligence in a thing could undermine your appetite for it. That yumminess obscured the mind of the yummy as well as the mind of the yummer. That deliciousness resulted in decapitation. That you could understand something only if you did not desire it. How did he know such things already? Usually girls knew them first, but not hers. Her girls, Beth and Dale, were tough beyond her comprehension. Practical, self-indulgent, independent five-year-old twins, a system unto themselves. They had their own secret world of Montessori code words and plastic jewelry and spells of hilarity brought on mostly by the phrase cinnamon m ms repeated six times fast. They wore sparkly fairy wings wherever they went, even over cardigans, and they carried wands. I'm a big brother now, Sam had said repeatedly to everyone and with uncertain pride the day the girls were born. And after that, he spoke not another word on the matter. Sometimes Kit accidentally referred to Beth and Dale as death and bale, as they, for instance, buried their several Barbies in sand, then lifted them out again with glee. A woman in a towel, reading of genocide, turned and smiled. In this fine compound on the sea, the contradictions of life were grotesque and uninventable. Kit went to the central office and signed up for a hot stone massage. Would you like a man or a woman? the receptionist asked. Excuse me? Kit said, stalling. After all these years of marriage, which did she want? What did she know of men or women? There's no such thing as men, Jan used to say. Every man is different. The only thing they have in common is, well, a capacity for horrifying violence. A man or a woman for the massage, Kit asked. She thought of the slow mating of snails, hermaphrodites for whom it was all so confusing. By the time they had figured out who was going to be the girl and who was going to be the boy, someone came along with some garlic paste and just swooped them right up. Oh, either one, she said and then knew she'd get a man. Whom she tried to not look at, but could smell in all his smoky aromas, tobacco, incense, cannabis, swirling their way around him. A wiry old American pothead gone to grim seed. His name was Daniel Handler, according to the business card he wore safety pinned to his shirt like a badge. He did not speak. He placed hot stones up and down her back and left them there. Did she think her burlotion flesh too private and precious to be touched by the likes of him? Are you crazy? The mad joy in her face was held over the floor by the massage table headpiece, and at his touch her eyes filled with bittersweet tears, which then dripped out of her nose, which she realized was positioned perfectly by God as a little drain pipe for crying. The sad massage hut carpet beneath her grew a spot. A heart could break, but perhaps you could move on to the next one 
and the next like a worm with its several hearts. Daniel left the hot stones on her until they went cold. As each one lost its heat, she could no longer feel it there on her back, and then its removal was like a discovery that it had been there all along. How strange to forget and then feel something only then at the end. Though this wasn't the same thing as the frog in the pot whose water slowly heats and boils, still it had meaning, she felt, the way metaphors of a thermal nature tended to. Then he took all the stones off and pressed the hard edges of them deep into her back, between the bones, in a way that felt mean, but more likely had no intention at all. That was nice, she said, as he was putting all his stones away. He had heated them in a plastic electric crockpot filled with water, and now he unplugged the thing in a tired fashion. Where did you get those stones? she asked. They were smooth and dark gray, black when wet, she saw. They're river stones, he said. I've been collecting them for years up in Colorado. He placed them in a metal fishing tackle box. You live in Colorado? she asked. Used to, he said, and that was that. On the last night of their vacation, her suitcase arrived like a joke. She didn't even open it. Sam put out the little doorknob flag that said, Wake us up for the sea turtles. The flag had a pre-printed request for a 3 a.m. wake-up call so that they could go to the beach and see the hatching of the baby sea turtles and their quick scuttle into the ocean under the cover of night to avoid predators. But though Sam had hung the flag carefully and before the midnight deadline, no staff person woke them. And by the time they got up and went down to the beach, it was ten in the morning. Strangely, the sea turtles were still there. They had hatched during the night, and then hotel personnel had hung on to them in a baskety cage to show them off to the tourists, who were too lazy or deaf to have got up in the night. Look, come see, a man with a Spanish accent who usually rented the scuba gear said. Sam, Beth, Dale, and Kit all ran over. Rafe had stayed behind to drink coffee and read the paper. The squirming babies were beginning to heat up in the sun. The goldening Venetian vellum of their wee-webbed feet was already edged in desiccating brown. I'm going to have to let them go now, the man said. You were the last ones to see these little bebes. He took them over to the water's edge and let them go, hours too late, to make their own way into the sea. And that's when a frigate bird swooped in, plucked them, one by one, from the silver waves, and ate them for breakfast. Kit sank down in a large chair next to Rafe. He was tanning himself, she could see, for someone else's lust, as every posture contained a strut. What bimbo had he wanted to give her ticket to? Only later would she find out. As a feminist, you mustn't blame the other woman, a neighbor would tell her. As a feminist, I request that you no longer speak to me, Kit would reply. I think I need a drink, she said. The kids were swimming. Don't expect me to buy you a drink, he said. Had she even asked? Did she now call him the bitterest name she could think of? Did she stand and turn and slap him across the face in front of several passers-by? Who told you that? When they finally left La Carib, she was glad. Staying there, she had begun to hate the world. In the airports and on the plane's home, she did not even try to act natural. Natural was a felony. She spoke to her children calmly from a script with dialogue and stage directions of utter neutrality. Back home in Beersboro, she unpacked the condoms and candles, her little love sack completely unused, and threw it in the trash. 
What had she been thinking? Later, when she had learned to tell this story differently, as a story, she would construct a final lovemaking scene of sentimental vengeance that would contain the inviolable center of their love, the sweet animal safety of night after night, the still beating tender heart of marriage. But for now, she would become like her unruinable daughters, and even her son, who, as he aged stoically and carried on in bottomless forgetting, would come to scarcely recall, was it even past imagining, that she and Rafe had ever been together at all. That was Paper Losses by Laurie Moore, which was published in The New Yorker in 2006 and can be found in the collected stories of Laurie Moore. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Gary, we were talking before the story about the notion of timing in in this story and in Laurie's work. Is there a particular moment in this story where that takes over for you? Yeah, I love this one part. It's sandwiched between dialogue between her and this attendant that she's making an appointment for a massage and then what she says to the actual masseuse. And it's this line, this series of lines. The mad joy in her face was held over the floor by the massage table headpiece, and at his touch her eyes filled with bittersweet tears, which then dripped out of her nose, which she realized was positioned perfectly by God as a little drain pipe for crying. The sad massage hot carpet beneath her grew a spot. It's the little drain pipe for crying, which is so <laughs> absolutely true, merged with the horrificness of being in this, you know, generic massage table and you're looking at this disgusting carpet that you always see yeah. merged with the stupid dialogue when you make the appointment and merged with the, the, the masseuse is completely is it masseuse for men too yeah i think it's masseur masseur right? i'm sorry and, and the final dialogue shows the masseur's deep deep indifference to her and, yeah. and, and to, yeah. to the fact that you know she's done something that really means something for her so and that the little drain pipe is kind of a funny image 
But here it's the most despairing and horrific thing that you encounter. Yeah. So it's that, it's that wonderful combination of both humor and deep, deep tragedy. There's that other line in the massage scene where, where she talks about what he's doing with the rocks seeming mean, but probably wasn't intended that way. You right. Know? right, because it's so mechanic for him and it means yeah. the world for her because yeah. she realizes that she may never be touched this way by her husband again. There's a funny story about the about the masseur, actually, which is his name, Daniel Handler, <laughs> which is a great name for a masseur. It's also the name of um, Lemony Snicket, Lemony Snicket of course. the writer. I wondered that when, when I was reading that. So yeah. when we were working on this story, when I was working on it with Laurie, she had, for a charity auction, auctioned off the right to have your name used in one of her works of fiction. <laughs> And Daniel Handler had won it. And she said, I'm writing about a masseur. What a perfect name. <laughs> you know, I have to put him in this story. So, uh, that's, so that's why I love he's those in options. there. So the thing about the story is, is, or about Laurie Moore's writing in general, is that she has this way of sort of giving you the joke that you would expect. So in the first line of this story, you have her saying, you know, they met in the peace movement, marching, organizing, making no nuke signs, and now they wanted to kill each other. That's a sort of badoomch. Then... She pushes it to the next level and gives you something you aren't expecting, which is they're also now a little bit pro nukes. <laughs> that know? was one of my favorite that, lines. Yeah. So that and and that line is where the real joke is, and it catches you off guard. And it's it's for that reason, it's much funnier. Um, so I'm wondering, do you think it's sort of part of the comic impulse just to keep pushing farther and farther? Yes. I mean, it, it's very interesting for me to read these stories because the sort of thing that I've been working on in, in my novels it would be termed satire. Laurie Moore does not write satire. Mm. Um, there's a huge dose of realism to everything she writes. You know, it's not realism with a capital R, but still. So what's interesting is how far she can take that mode and be so funny without sort of overstepping the boundary into yes, caricature. There's you, no caricature here. No, it's how do you know when to stop? And that's the hardest thing for somebody who's raised on comic fiction. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my first encounters with, with books were The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and I thought everything had to be in that kind of antic mode. But this conveys so much using such a judicious amount of humor, you know. Mm-hmm. And it varies yeah. by story. I mean, some of her stories are, are much funnier than others. But I don't think I've ever read a story, and, and so many of them are about terminal illnesses. I don't think I've ever read even a terminal illness story that didn't make me chuckle at some terminal point. Terminal illness and terminal marriage. Terminal illness and terminal marriage. It's, <laughs> that is a fantastic set of themes. Really, that's all you need. <laughs> that's you know, all you need fiction. to write. <laughs> that's all you really need to write. I mean, the other thing is you could take it to the dissolution of entire countries or something like that. And, but interesting enough, she does. I mean, Rwanda and Yugoslavia are mentioned in this piece. So, of course, it's more than a series of jokes as a story. It's more than comedy. It's also tragedy. There's also something really terribly sad happening here, and particularly in that final paragraph where it's not really funny at all. It's just sort of heartbreaking. And I read an interview where Laurie said that the job of the ending of a story is to shine back over the story and give it its meaning. Hmm. And if you look at that, you know, those last lines, the sweet animal safety of night after night, the still beating tender heart of marriage. If that's what's giving meaning to this story, then it's it's more about crying than laughing. It's very interesting, because, you know, because it, talking about shining a light on the rest of the story talks about animal safety, right, in that last mm-hmm. line. And a bunch <laughs> yeah. of sea turtles, baby sea turtles, yeah. just got eaten yeah. by a bird. Yeah. To me, that is sort of the, the, the penultimate horror of this story. And it's one that I really remember quite well, is the fact that that bird does swoop in and eat the little ones, which, you know, with a different writer, that would have been a very heavy-handed motif. You know, these kids are about to lose their family. 
the parents are getting divorced. But not here. Here there's something, it's, it's also the humor of the bird swooping in and eating them for breakfast, yeah. just as Rafe is sitting there for breakfast. Everything is very finely tuned here, you know, yeah, to yeah. the point where it doesn't go beyond what it has to, uh, but it ex- gives you exactly the meaning that you begin to almost crave by the end of a story like this. A good story really does set you up for only one ending. There can only be one ending, and I think that's true of this piece. And it's full of metaphors. I mean, the the sea turtles, you can read them just as these sort of poor victims of ecotourism gone wrong, you know, where the dumb hotel guy keeps (laughs) them out of the water until it's, you know, they're going to die. And you can also read those sea turtles as the children or as Kit or or any other things. And she even has Kit call attention to her own metaphors. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, so she's she's fond of using thermal metaphors, but right. this metaphor is not quite like this metaphor. <laughs> there's such a sort of self consciousness in the composition. Yeah, there. yeah, absolutely. I also think there's this other self conscious moment where, at the end, you know, she tells us that later Kit would learn to tell this story differently. So she's calling attention to the fact that that someone is telling a story, and that perhaps in the future she's going to tell it falsely or she's going to fictionalize it somehow, which, which tells you that this is the real story. In fact, it's not the real story. Right. It's not quite the true story. I, I sort of love those layerings. Yeah. It's a great little final bit of character development that we get out of Kit, the fact that we really don't know and that everything about her husband has been construed through her eyes, which is how we tell stories. I mean, there's no other and there is no absolute truth, obviously. So this is as close as we can get to the truth through her eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting because at the time, Kit doesn't know there's another woman. She doesn't. She just, right. she just knows that he's a space alien. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she knows that he's changed. Yeah, yeah. And then him building yeah. the rockets is another very precious detail in the basement of all places, and they're all yeah. going to die. Oh. Yeah. Well, you talked before about this sort of, you know, war, no war idea disappearing, but we, it comes back comes with back. those rockets. It comes back with those, with her asking about the dissolvable bullets. and Yeah, and there's another great line that really sort of summarizes marriage. When they first met, he'd been something of a nudist. It was good to date a nudist. Things moved right along, but it was not good <laughs> trying to stay married to one. And, and maybe that's that should be issued in every Vermont and California <laughs> certificate of marriage. You know, it's good to Don't date marry a nudist. Him nudist, nudist. You shouldn't um, marry one. Laurie once said that her way of constructing a story was to write the first third, jump ahead to the ending, and then connect them by writing the middle. Wow. Do you think that's what what happened here? I mean, if you look at it, the first uh-huh. third is the sort of home stretch, right. and the ending is the marriage is over, and in between you have this vacation. So I wondered if she had thought about, you know, how do I get from him serving papers to the end of this marriage? This is so fascinating for me to hear again because I'm not a short story writer because I don't yeah. know how to condense. It, it sounds like that could be it, right? Yeah. I, I just never thought of it that way. That's not how you write. I write completely in a linear fashion. Uh, everything yeah. is sketched out uh, by, thir- you know, if I put down 30 points of what's going to happen, then a lawyer vets it and then I start to write <laughs> it. But this seems like a much more organic process. Yeah. I can't quite imagine sitting down and saying, okay, now what do I do? Send them to the Caribbean. <laughs> <You know? laughs> ah, I mean, it's, this seems almost like a, a theme, right, of, of stories set in vacations. Well, I was interested because the last story you read for the podcast, the Andrea Lee story, right, was course, also duh. about a woman. Yes. Told from the point of view oh of a woman whose marriage is suffering. Oh, my God. Who goes on a beach vacation. Of course. I keep thinking in, my, in the back of my head, I was like, there's something about this that registers. Wow. Something about you. Something about me. Do you go on beach vacations? I haven't been in one, on one <laughs> since I was about five. But No, since I was about 13 or 14. 
That is fascinating. Well, you know what I'll be talking about with my shrink for Yeah, exactly, years exactly. To come. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the title. As a financial term, a paper loss is a loss that's happened, but you haven't realized it yet. It's happened on paper, but you haven't tried to sell the stock that's mm-hmm. fallen, and so you haven't actually quite lost the money yet. What do you think it's referring to here? I think it's about relationships. I think, you know, so many relationships are over in the first three, four weeks of a relationship, even when they last <laughs> 17, 18 years, you yeah. know, and it's just the rest is just you play it out and wait for the, I don't know how it works exactly in the financial yeah. world, but you wait for the papers to arrive as they do arrive here yeah. in, in, a, yeah. in, a, in a big way. And then, and then, you know, it's over, but you knew it was over for a long time. I mean, I think in some ways for this woman, she knows that things aren't well, but I think it kicks in when she's getting that massage for me. Mm-hmm. That's when I know that things are over. I mean, because when you read a story like this, you don't know what was going to happen, obviously. Yeah. But but after the, I heard, after the little drain pipe came in, that's when I thought there's there's no way that... Yeah, she'll, she'll poor pull, little yeah, drain pipe. Poor little drain pipe. And, and now I can only look at noses as such. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Gary. Thank you. Gary Steingart's latest book is Super Sad True Love Story. His memoir, Little Failure, will be published next year. You can hear Gary read and talk about a story by Andrea Lee in a previous fiction podcast, and you can also hear Laurie Moore read and discuss a story by Julie Hayden. Just do a search on newyorker.com or go to the iTunes store where you can subscribe to this podcast, the New Yorker Out Loud podcast, and the Political Scene podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com and join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.